Hi there. Welcome back to Health Law Diagnosed, a mixed podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm Bridget Keller, your podcast host. Today, I'm joined by three of my colleagues from the Healthcare Enforcement Defense Practice, co-chairs Karen Lovich and Brian Dunphy, and member Owen Byrne. We have had a lot of innovative, new thought leadership at MIDS in the last few months, and one publication that I've really enjoyed is the Healthcare Enforcement Defense Practices newsletter, Enforcements. So today, I asked Karen, Brian, and Owen to join us to talk a little bit about the first two editions of Enforcements and highlight key areas of focus in healthcare enforcement defense in 2023. So Karen, Brian, Owen, welcome. I'd love to have you all introduce yourselves. Karen? Hi, I'm Karen Lovich, and I'm chair of the Health Law Practice Admins, as well as co-chair of the Healthcare Enforcement Defense Practice. I'm a healthcare enforcement attorney, and I'm resident in the Washington, D.C. office. Hi, Bridget. Thanks for having me. My name is Brian Dunphy. I'm a partner in the litigation and health law sections of the firm, and I work with Karen to co-chair the Healthcare Enforcement Defense Group. I handle many um, healthcare enforcement matters, principally False Claims Act investigations and litigations. I look forward to talking with everyone today about some trends and issues we're seeing in this area. Hi, guys. I'm Owen Byrne, a partner in Mince's Boston office, member of the Healthcare Enforcement Defense Group, and co-chair of the firm's White Collar and Government Investigations Group. Glad to be here today. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much. So why don't we start with a little introduction of what enforcement is. So Karen, will you tell us about those first two issues and, and maybe what's coming next? Sure, Bridget. Um, in the past at Mens, we had published a report called our annual year in review and an outlook in the coming year. Instead of putting together a long form report, we thought we would go with the trend and keep it short. And we instead have done an annual year in review and outlook that is composed of articles that address particular areas uh, related to healthcare fraud enforcement. And so we not only summarize the important events, we also provide our analysis of you know, what those events mean and what we expect to be coming down the pike. And our second issue followed quickly on the heels of that issue, and it is an analysis of False Claims Act case statistics. And it's composed of an analysis of data that comes from the Department of Justice that's available to anyone who wants to review it, and also a proprietary set of data that we compile here at Mints, where we follow the unsealed Ketam cases. And we put that data together to look at, you know, what's happened in the previous year and again, you know, what we expect to be happening in the following year. And so in future issues, I'm sure we'll be covering various developments in healthcare fraud enforcement in the coming year. That's really helpful, Karen. Thank you for that description. I know I, I enjoyed reading it and I bet our listeners will too. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, definitely um, head over to our www.defmints.com and you can find those newsletters there. Why don't we dive into some of the substance? Um, I thought something that was so interesting, and Brian, I know that this might be something that interested you as well. There was a description of two FCA issues that the Supreme Court is expected to address this year. So would you mind talking a little bit about those cases and why they're important? Sure, Bridget. Thanks. Yeah, there's two cases that are um, pending before the United States Supreme Court right now, I should say two issues. 
Um, the first is, I think, the matter that's going to have the broader impact on False Claims Act investigations and, and litigation. Um, and that case involves two grocery store chains, Super Value and Safeway, um, so call them the grocery store cases for, uh, for shorthand. And the issue in those cases, which are consolidated before the Supreme Court, um, has to do with um, knowledge under the False Claims Act. So knowledge is defined under the False Claims Act um, to have three different standards. One is actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard. So this is typically you know, a key element of a False Claims Act case, of course. It's something that must be proven to show False Claims Act liability. And so especially in healthcare, where you have this very, very elaborate and complex regulatory scheme that governs participation in healthcare programs, companies that participate are often faced with these complex decisions and interpretations about what does this regulation mean or what does this guidance from CMS mean? And so what a number of circuit courts decided was that a, a defendant does not have knowledge under the False Claims Act if the guidance they're operating under is ambiguous and they have an objectively reasonable interpretation of that guidance. Uh, and so you know, again, this is particularly important in healthcare, um, and therefore it's drawing a lot of interest. So you have many stakeholders within who in the False Claims Act weighing in before the Supreme Court with amicus briefs. So the Solicitor General ha has filed a brief at the Supreme Court's request. Taxpayers Against Fraud has briefed it. Some of the you know the Chambers of Commerce, um, some of the uh, the organizations that represent uh, America's health plans. And the like have all weighed in on the significance of this case. And Brian, these are these are cases where the government actually declined to intervene at a stage after it investigated it, right? So the, the grocery stores are actually litigating with plaintiffs' counsel. Is that right? Uh, that's right, Owen. Yeah. So the cases were declined by the government. So the relators that have moved ahead um, with the cases in in you know in Super Valley, for example, the case went all the way to summary judgment. So it had gone through full discovery. You know, exchange of documents and depositions, and so the um, Seventh Circuit in that case, you know, ruled that SuperValue did have an objectively reasonable understanding of the regulation at issue, which involved a, a usual and customary price that they charged. It wasn't a defined term. They had a reasonable interpretation of it, and therefore did not act knowingly. Um, what's interesting in particular is there's a lot of discussion in the briefing before the Supreme Court about. At what time must the defendant hold that objectively reasonable interpretation or understanding? And so the circuit court decisions leave room for a reasonable interpretation that you come up with after the time of the conduct. And so the, uh, many of the, uh, the interested parties have weighed in saying that that just opens the door for you know, creative lawyers to come up with an interpretation at some point in time uh, and that it really should be measured the t what understanding the entity held at the time of the conduct. So that's an interesting angle. Um, I think that you know has been discussed at length before the Supreme Court. It'd be interesting to see how the court comes down on it. The oral argument in the case is set for April 18, so it's coming up pretty quickly. It'd be interesting to I'm looking forward to listening in to the argument and seeing the reporting on the argument for any clues to how the court may come out on it. But I think either way, it's going to have a, uh, an important impact on the strength of a, a knowledge, a defense based on the element of knowledge when we're defending clients against False Claims Act investigations and False Claims Act cases. 
you know, if we're if defendants are able to show that they did have a reasonable interpretation of, of a complex, ambiguous provision, you know, then they can't have knowledge potentially based on how the Supreme Court comes out. I think it's also going to be interesting if, if the Supreme Court does, you know, adopt that objectively reasonable standard. I think what we'll see is our clients will be will be looking for guidance on what is a reasonable interpretation of this complex guidance, so that they're documenting that at the time, um, in real time, so they later can kind of bolster a defense if they ever face a, a false claims act lawsuit. So I think that that case is one to watch closely. is going to have a broader impact. The second case is Polanski versus Executive Health Resources. That is a, an, an important issue, but I think a less sort of widely applicable issue. So there the issue in the case ha- involves the government's authority to dismiss a false claims act case where it had declined the case. So in a number of cases over the last several years, about 58 is the last number I've seen on it. The government has stepped in where it initially declined and the relator wanted to move ahead with the case. The government has stepped in and actually sought dismissal of the case to bring an end to the case. Was that was that fifty eight last year or fifty eight ever? Yeah, fifty eight in the last um, in the last, but the last five years. So that's um, there was a memo that um, came out a number about five years ago. It's called the Granston Memo. It's sort of in shorthand, which lays out some of the factors that prosecutors should consider in stepping in to dismiss declined false claims act cases. So that's in the that number is um, the last count we have of the number of times the government has used that authority in the last five years. So just to put that number in perspective, that 3,000 False Claims Act cases were filed during that same period of time. So I think it's pretty clear that DOJ exercises this authority, as Mike Granson from DOJ said in a conference Brian and I attended, they're using that authority sparingly and transparently, according to DOJ. And so I think that the fact that DOJ is willing to dismiss cases has at times created unreasonable expectations from defendants that, you know, it's a readily available remedy. And so it is important to keep that number in perspective. Yeah, thanks, Karen. That's important context. As to your point, and why I think it's this decision is not going to apply as broadly is because this authority is used with tremendous discretion. Does the DOJ actually get to dismiss the case or do they just recommend and move that it be dismissed and then ultimately a judge has to make certain findings to actually get rid of it? Yes, right. They have to, they move to dismiss the case um, in court. And there's a difference among circuits about what standard applies to the government's motion to dismiss the case. There are three different standards. There's one called SWIFT, one which is a case name, one Sequoia Orange, and then the other courts have applied the standard under Federal Rule 41A. But the bottom line is that whatever standard courts apply, almost every time the government asks to dismiss the case, the courts grant that motion. I'm only aware of one or two where the court has denied the government's motion. And that makes a lot of sense because the claim is the government's claim. That, you know, even if a relator is moving forward with a declined case, it's ultimately the government fisc that was harmed, uh, and so it's really the government's claim. So the government, you know, makes sense to me to have where under any standard, if the government asks to have a court dismiss the case, that you know, absent some extraordinary circumstances, that, you know, the court would grant that case that uh, that dismissal. 
But one thing to keep an eye on is which it will the Supreme Court adopt one of these particular standards that have that have been utilized by circuit courts as part of its decision. What happened in in this particular case, the uh, the Polanski Executive Health Resources case, that the government declined the case. The relator litigated for many years. I think it was four years. The government then uh, intervened and moved to dismiss. The court granted the government's request to dismiss, um, saying it meets the standard of Federal Rule 41A. So relator on appeal is challenging the government's authority to step in to dismiss the case. You know, it's not surprisingly given that relator had invested so many years in in litigation, only to have the case you know sort of ended by the government saying there was a a low chance of success and it was would require substantial resources. I think you're you're totally right that you know this case is probably going to have less impact, but I would bet in in almost every declined case you're going to have the client wanting you know a motion to be filed which is probably going to be called whenever the case is called motion, right? It doesn't mean we're going to tr- we're not going to try in almost every instance where there's a declined case and a relator wants to go forward even if the likelihood of success is pretty low. Yeah, I think that's right on it. You know, it's an argument that, you know, we on the defense side often make that the government should step in to decline a case. And I've had a, a case where that's been successful. Um, so the government certainly does do it. I think it's an argument that defendants should continue to advance. And, you know, the con- how the contours of how we frame that argument may change a little bit depending upon how the Supreme Court comes out in the case, but it's definitely one to watch. Yeah, you're in, you're one of those 58, you're in the rarefied air. <laughs> Thanks for this discussion, Brian. This is really interesting. And I think I'm excited to see what happens um, with the Supreme Court rulings later this year. And, you know, in addition to this, the the technical issues that are going to be addressed, you know, at the Supreme Court level, I know that we've spent a lot of time in enforcement talking about various government enforcement priorities. A couple of these have been that I've seen, you know, the expansion of ECRA, maybe how telehealth is addressed, even pandemic related fraud issues. Karen, what's standing out to you in terms of the government enforcement priorities? You know, I think I would mention a couple of things. The first relates to the law that we refer to as ECRA, which stands for Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act. And this law was passed in 2018. It was originally intended to prohibit kickbacks in the substance abuse and addiction treatment setting, but it broadly incorporates clinical laboratories. And so this law technically applies regardless of the setting in which clinical laboratory services are provided. And it applies regardless of whether you're talking about a government payer or a commercial insurer. And so, you know, the law has traditionally been applied in the criminal substance abuse and addiction treatment context. And we have started to see that change a bit, and it has been used over the last year or two in the clinical laboratory setting with respect to COVID-19 testing, and as well as with kickbacks in the genetic testing setting, which has been a hot topic as well. And so, you know, DOJ is the agency that has enforcement authority And, you know, DOJ, as I think we all know, does not typically promulgate regulations that interpret the criminal laws that it enforces. And so we don't have any regulations to give us guidance on how DOJ might, you know, continue to apply this law in the lab setting. But it's definitely one to watch. 
And then, you know, related to that one, I guess I would just quickly mention telemedicine comes as no surprise, I'm sure, to anyone that during the pandemic, the restrictions around telemedicine were loosened and there were fewer requirements that telemedicine providers had to comply with to be able to bill Medicare as well as commercial payers. And so what we refer to as telefraud enforcement has been rampant prior to the pandemic, probably since about 2019. And uh, those cases involve, you know, out and out telemedicine fraud. So people, you know, billing for lab services that were ordered pursuant to a sham telemedicine visit, for example. But, you know, I think as a result of the pandemic, uh, we're going to start to see a turn in telemedicine fraud cases. And we have started to see False Claims Act cases that relate to lack of compliance with the loosened restrictions around telemedicine. So in other words, providers arguably are allegedly stepping into the breach, so to speak, and taking advantage of the loosening of those restrictions. We haven't seen a lot of those yet, but you know, I suspect we're going to or continue to see more because it does take time for sealed PTM cases to get investigated and unsealed. Yeah, that's a great point, Karen, especially about the timing issue, right? We don't know yet really what NJ is investigating. Yep, absolutely. You know, one other hot topic that is near and dear to my heart, Brian, you and I work on a lot of these cases together, is Medicare Advantage. You know, what do you think we're going to see in Medicare Advantage enforcement this year? Yeah, Bridget, it's obviously been a a stated priority of the government uh, for a number of years. Medicare Advantage has grown substantially. And last stats I saw, Medicare, about 50% of Medicare enrollees are now covered by Medicare Advantage plans. And that that number continues to grow. Just sort of quickly, Medicare Advantage um, is a Medicare benefit offered by a private health plan. So these are all matters involve private health plans. And nearly every large Medicare Advantage plan is currently in litigation with the government or relators over you know, alleged Medicare Advantage fraud, and that's only going to continue to grow. So the claims and the areas of focus in this area have to do, I think, with the way Medicare Advantage plans are paid, which is unique to Medicare Advantage in some respects. So they're paid what's called a capitated amount. It's a fixed payment for every member of the plan. And then the plan has to manage the costs and the idea being to try to keep the cost beneath the, the payment amount and leave some room for a profit. And the way the payments are structured is that the plans are paid for every member based on the some demographic information as well as a risk score, which measures the relative health of each member. So the claims we're seeing in Medicare Advantage have to do with what the plans are submitting regarding the relative health of their members. That's in the form of diagnosis codes. So there's a series of cases involving the the diagnosis codes that plans and providers submitted to the government for payment. And so plans have been the subject of scrutiny of either submitting unsupported codes by way of reviewing charts, or if they've identified codes that should be deleted, which would then reduce the payment, and they fail to delete those codes, that's another type of claim that we've seen. Um, and there'll be there'll be more of those without question. The other area that I think is one to watch is you know, as I mentioned, these are sort of fixed payments for every member. OIG put a report last year um, raising concerns about plans denying services to their members, which therefore reduces the plan's costs. And so the concern is that the plans have an incentive to you know deny the payment for services to their members in order to you know in order to profit from that. 
that again, that was in an OIG report. And I haven't seen cases yet or investigations on that front. But to Karen's earlier point, you know, oftentimes those things become public a few years after they've been ongoing. So that that's really an area to watch in Medicare Advantage. Bridget, I'm interested in kind of what you've what you've been seeing in that area. If there's other other areas that you think um, will be an area of focus. Yeah, definitely right. And you know, I was just thinking too about how the OIG has added to its work plan general risk adjustment and diagnosis coding in other programs. Um, so I think that they're taking some of what they're learning in their Medicare Advantage enforcement activities and looking to see, you know, how does this relate to other risk adjustment programs and other payment mechanisms that are based on risk adjustment? You know, for example, um, ACA exchange plans or, you know, under the various dying-based care programs that CMS administers. So I think it'll be interesting to see if, you know, any of the enforcement activity turns there, um, knowing that OIG added it to its work plan as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also worth mentioning here, it's not directly related to enforcement, but there's a new RADV rule that came out recently that affects Medicare Advantage plans and the um, the audits that they'll undergo by way of RADV audits, and then the um, whether there can be extrapolation to the findings of those audits. So that's um, that's something that our colleagues have discussed at length, um, and it's certainly worth mentioning in the Medicare Advantage space. Oh, absolutely, Brian. I, I think we might be able to have a whole podcast episode on that final rule. Um, so it's definitely a hot topic and uh, definitely of interest as well. So far, our discussion of the FCA landscape has been really interesting. We're going to pause here for part two to come in a couple of days. And listeners, if you have any questions for our guests today or have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. I'm Bridget Keller, and this was Health Law Diagnosed. <laughs>